Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Right now, we're in our Advent series, where we look at how Jesus is our hope, peace, joy, and love. Good morning and welcome. I want to start with a confession this morning. And the confession is this. Sometimes when we're singing Christmas songs, I don't think it happens the rest of the year because you don't see a lot of other songs that we sing on Sunday morning like showing up in movies. But sometimes when we're singing Christmas songs on Sunday morning, all I'm thinking about is the movie that I associate that song with. And I'm wondering if that's just me or if maybe there's some other people here who do that. Literally looking searching. Okay, okay. What did you think of when when we sang Oh Holy Night? Huh? Dr. Quartz, that's not a movie. No. What movie? What'd you say, Lewis? Nobody was thinking about Home Alone right then? Thank you, and shame on you for not saying it earlier, okay? I thought I was all by myself. Gosh, that's like all I can think about when I hear that song. Anyways, if you're a guest with us, my name's Ryan. And I'm on the staff team here at Calvary West, and I'm glad that you're here with us this morning. We're in our, uh, I think, fourth week of an Advent series. We're talking about the fourth and final theme of Advent today. And I've got a question uh, to get us started this morning. Like, Christmas is just right around the corner. We've got one week left, one week until my favorite service of the entire year, which is our Christmas Eve service. Uh, we're doing two this year, but... Uh, favorite services of the year. But that also means that you've only got one more week to like buy that gift that you've been waiting to buy. It's probably too late to buy it online. So that also means you've got one more week to enjoy the traffic at Stratford and Haynes Mall Boulevard. One more week, of course, to binge your favorite Christmas movies. I know none of them will be on Hallmark based on what we talked about a few weeks ago. But that gets me to the question, how many of you love the movie Elf? And I do want to see hands. I want to see how many people here love Elf. And I just want to know what's wrong with the rest of you. Like, what in the world? How could you not love Elf? Uh, Elf has got Will Ferrell at the peak of Will Ferrell being funny. Uh, I think it was right after Old School and right before Anchorman that it came out. And uh, just like the pinnacle of his career, he's Buddy the Elf. He's adopted by Papa Elf after an unfortunate mix-up on Christmas Eve. And he's raised as an elf until he finally realizes like way after everybody else, right, that he is not in fact an elf. He is a grown man. And so Buddy goes on this adventure. It's his epic quest, right, to find his father. And in the process of finding his father, he falls in love. He saves Christmas. It's not bad. It's a great story. And um, by the way, this is, this is not the point, but did you know that this is the 20th anniversary of Elf this year. It came out Christmas 2003. So listen, that means if you saw Elf in the theater, you're like a hundred years old, basically. <laughs> or, or better yet, I think this is what we did. If you rented it at a Blockbuster, the one right there at Tanglewood, am I right? The VHS? Come on. So if you did that, my kids would say you are very, very old. But Elf has been embraced really by the next generation. It's been awesome to see. Uh, it's not just us old people who love Elf. It's everybody, really. And Maddox and I got to see Elf in concert. I don't know if you've been to any of these, but they show the movie and then they play the music live with the orchestra. It's really cool. Uh, I, with Mason, we saw Harry Potter. And with Maddox, I saw Elf. We did that a couple nights ago. And um, he knows as many lines from Elf as I do. 
Which if you think about it, like that's pretty impressive because I have been watching Elf for a full decade before he was even born. And he still knows as many lines as I do. And uh, I love Elf. Mary and I watch it every year. We watch it with the kids now, obviously, as well. And it's hard to like pick a favorite moment from that movie because there's so many good ones. But the ones that I really love all relate to Buddy when he is encountering someone that he either believes is from the North Pole or that he believes should have been from the North Pole, right? So like those interactions when he's in the big magical New York City um, and, and probably the, the very best one is when he's in Gimbel's, right? And Santa's there and he discovers that Santa isn't Santa and you remember what he like whisper yells at him? He's like, you sit on a throne of lies. Like, I love that line. It's so good. It's, it's great. And then just after that, he's arguing with someone he believes uh, is from the North Pole, but actually isn't. And uh, it's Miles Finch, the uh, acclaimed children's author. And they're arguing in the boardroom, right? And going back and forth. And then Buddy kind of cuts to everybody else in the room. And he's like, oh, he's an angry elf. And that... Uh, it gets me every time. I love watching it. Uh, there's one thing I don't love about the movie Elf, and it's this. I don't love, and I was thinking about it as we watched it the other night, how the movie reflects and portrays right, a degraded and distorted vision of love, of what love really is. And you can't get mad at Elf for this because it's not Elf's fault. Elf is one among a million examples that we could give of this in our culture, and that's because our cultural vision for love has been degraded and distorted. I think both of those words are significant, both degraded and distorted. And so it only makes sense that the entertainment that our culture produces, that we're consuming in our culture, also reflects that degraded and distorted vision of love, just like everything else that's caught up in our culture or is produced by it. And here's what I mean when I say the cultural vision for love is degraded and distorted. To degrade something is to, to drag it down. Right? It's to lower the quality of a thing. It's to spoil the beauty of a thing. It's to reduce the value of that thing in some way. And there's this moment in Elf when Buddy is confessing his feelings for Jovi, the, uh, the woman dressed up as an elf in Gimbel's. And do you remember in that moment what he tells her? Right? He says to her, I think you're beautiful. And then what? You make me feel warm inside. And... I forget exactly how it says it. And then he says, and my tongue swells up. I have no idea what that means. I actually researched this. I was like, what does it mean that your tongue swells up when you're in front of someone you love? I couldn't find anything. And so then he says, so do you want to get food? And then, so they go on this date. They have a great time. They're, they're, you know, they're connecting. They're clicking. And then he bursts into his dad's meeting and he yells out what? I'm in love. I was just thinking, like, is that really what love is? Like this warm feeling inside and cotton mouth where you can't say what you want to say, maybe? Is that really what love is? And Elf is a comedy. It's not trying to teach us what, what love really is. But it does reflect the cultural and popular view of love that really is not much more sophisticated than that if it is at all. It's a warm feeling inside. It's having similar goals as someone else. It's wanting to travel to the same places. It's listening to the same music and binging the same shows. And we go, man, we, I love this person because we have all these things in common. That's in our culture, we'll say that we love almost anything. Have you noticed that? Even how I'm talking about it right now. Even how I ask the question, do you love Elf? And like everybody but two of you raised your hands like, and if I had to press you further, I'm like, do you really love Elf? 
Love Elf. And if you love Elf like you love your Starbucks or you love your favorite style of barbecue or you love your favorite college team, we say we love all of those things. Well, what does it mean then when we turn to our spouse and we say, I love you to our spouse? Or we look at our kids or our grandkids and we say, I love you to our kids or our grandkids. Or we look at our parents or our grandparents and we say, I love you to them. Or if we come to church and we say, I love my church. Or we look at God and we say, God, I love you. Jesus, I love you. What does it mean if we use the same word in both of those different scenarios? Can that one word really hold the weight of both the mundane, the everyday, the normal, and the transcendent? Things that are really significant and really important. Or maybe we've degraded the meaning of love to the point that it barely means anything in our culture at all. So I don't love that elf and the wider culture that we live in degrades love, that it pulls it down, that it makes it seem less valuable, less weighty, less significant, less beautiful than I think it really is. But I also, I would also say that we distort love. And to distort something is to twist it, to pull it out of shape, so that it no longer conforms to its original purpose or design. To twist it, to pull it, it's misshapen now. It no longer fits the original purpose or design. I think this is the heart, really, of where our culture misses it when it comes to love. It's the distortion of what love really is. I think we could get past uh, the other part, the, the, the degradation of love. If you know, I do think it is, it's degrading to the concept, to the idea, to the word, to use it in all these different ways, say the same thing and mean vastly different things. I love Elf versus I love my wife, right? That's confusing in and of itself, but we could probably get past that with clarifying language. But the distortion of love really gets at the heart of what it is. And here's why that I don't think we can get past it that easily. The culture's vision for love, what the culture means when the culture says love is unconditional affirmation and celebration. Unconditional affirmation and celebration. And that makes sense, right, given everything that we know about expressive individualism. We've talked about this before, but if you're new, uh, it's, it's this idea that all truth is internal to the self. So all truth claims reside within an individual, and they are discovered by that individual. Truth is discovered. It's not revealed from out there. It's discovered in here. And so a, purpose, a, a person's greatest purpose in life the highest goal that they can set their mind to, set their life to, is discovering the truth within and then living it out authentically in the world around them. That's the gist of expressive individualism. Truth is within, it must be discovered and then lived out. And when you think about it, if that is the case, if all truth is internal to the self and it can only be discovered and then lived out by the individual, then of course, you all would owe me unconditional affirmation and celebration of whatever my truth is. If truth is internal, I'm the only one with access to it. You do not have access to what's going on inside of me, to what feels true or seems true or I deem to be true internally. You can't see that in me. And so you don't have standing, you don't have grounds to contradict that in me. You have no way of, of evaluating my truth claim apart from the fact that I'm claiming it as true. And so all that's left for you to do, you're not, you're not judging my truth claim. Does it line up with reality? Does it not? Does it help you or hurt you? Is it good for yourself or others, right? There's no evaluation. You just affirm and you celebrate. And that's how our culture talks about, thinks about, processes the idea of 
love. I'm the only one with access. Your only job is to affirm and to celebrate. So the cultural agenda, or sorry, the agenda of cultural love is the celebration of who you currently are. Who you are right now, what you know of yourself right now, the idea of love in our culture is that that current snapshot of you would be affirmed and celebrated. This has been simmering in our culture since the Enlightenment, right, in the West. And so it's been going on for a very long time, but it exploded onto the scene in the 70s with the advent of uh, the, self ex- uh, sorry, the self-esteem movement in psychology and pop psychology. We've all heard these things, these slogans, right? You're perfect, what? Just the way you are. You're perfect just the way you are. You can do anything you set your mind to if you want it bad enough. And then at least when I was growing up, right, it's like you get a trophy and you get a trophy and you get a trophy and Oprah's in charge of all the sports leagues and everybody gets a trophy for everything, whether they've won something or not. And we've been swimming in that culture for the last 50 years. At the core of that, the reason that that became popular in the first place is because we see love in our culture as unconditional affirmation and celebration, the celebration of who you currently are. Who you currently are may change. In fact, it it probably will change over time as you discover new things about yourself, as you discover who you are or, or rethink who you are, reshape who you are. But the role of everyone else doesn't change. As I discover something new about myself, remember these truths are emerging from within, And so only I have access to them. And as I gain access to them, as I realize what's true of me now, your job is just to affirm and to celebrate what's true of me now. Not what was before, not what will be, but what is right now. No matter what's changing or what's different. John Piper sums up this cultural vision for love like this. He said, love is giving someone a mirror and helping them like what they see. Love is giving someone a mirror and helping them like what they see. That resonated with me as I think about, man, what, how do we talk about love? How do we talk about self-esteem and self-worth? It's just putting up a mirror and helping people like what they see, what currently is. And you see that in the self-esteem movement. It popped up in Elf, right? Buddy, who's not an Elf, is falling behind in his production in the workshop, Santa's workshop, right? He's making etch-a-sketches and they're like, buddy, how many have you made today? he's like, 85? And everybody's silent. Like, they can't believe he's only got 85 Etch-A-Sketches put together. He's not keeping up. He feels bad. He starts beating himself up. And who remembers what he says about himself? I'm just a cotton-headed ninny muggins, right? I'm just a cotton-headed ninny muggins. And apparently that's the worst thing you can say about someone at the North Pole because everyone stops. It's like being with a woman whose teenager is learning to drive, right? <gasps> you know, and, and everybody stops. They drop their tools. I see some teenagers looking at their moms right now. I didn't mean to start anything. But they stop their tools, and what do they do? they immediately begin to affirm and celebrate Buddy's internal truth about himself, which is that he really is an elf. Even though he doesn't look like an elf, he doesn't fit in with the elves, he can't work like an elf can work, right? Even though he's not an elf, that's his internal truth. And so they all begin to affirm and celebrate that. No, Buddy, you're just different. You just have different talents. And he's like, well, it seems like everybody else here has the same talent. Right? He's, he's starting to understand that he doesn't fit in, but they're trying to convince him that he does so they don't upend what he has considered true about himself. They're trying to find something to affirm and to celebrate. 
We see it in real life, right, with the gender and sexuality confusion that we experience as a culture. The idea that everyone has to enthusiastically affirm everything that you say about yourself, whether or not it lines up with external reality. You see it in the shifts in campus culture and corporate life, right, with diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives with safe spaces and trigger warnings and content warnings. Why do those things exist? Because of the idea that people should be protected from ideas that they disagree with, that they could be literally harmed by ideas that they disagree with. That's why those things exist, because love, caring for someone, is not disagreeing with them, especially if it's something that's significant to their sense of self, especially if it's something about their identity, their personhood, how they see themselves in the world. And so to love someone is to affirm that, not to disagree with it. That's our culture's vision for love. That's why it is almost impossible to disagree with people about almost anything. Have you noticed that lately? I know we've talked about it before, but just how quick people are to anger when you disagree with them. Why is that? Well, because we expect now to be affirmed and celebrated, and when we're not, it comes across not as disagreement, it comes across as hatred, because we've redefined what it means to love. Is that true? Is it you really hate the people that you disagree with, and so they're right to feel hated, they're right to feel attacked? Or is it just that we have distorted, twisted the idea of love, and so it no longer fits its original purpose and design? Now, if that's the case, then the right next question is, well, what was the original purpose and design of love? If the culture is missing it with unconditional affirmation and celebration, by the way, this is the culture that our, our, our kids, our students, teenagers, young adults are living in every day, especially online. There's a great book called Engaging Your Teen's World. It's by the people who founded Axis, which we've talked about before. But um, I meant to bring my copy up, and I forgot to say this in the first service. So if you see anybody from the 9 o'clock service, tell them. Engaging Your Teen's World uh, is just a, does a great job of explaining how this is and why this is and how it's impacting uh, your teenagers. But uh, that idea has been twisted. It no longer fits. So what is? And if we're going to figure that out, we can't just keep talking about Elf the whole time. We need a source even more ancient than uh, 2003. So John chapter 3, verse 16 is where we're going to be for just a moment. And then we're going to switch over to 1 John chapter 4. But open up to John chapter 3. One of the gospel writers, uh, John chapter 3, starting in verse 16, to help us ground ourselves in a biblical vision of love that is different from and better than the culture's vision. For God so loved the world, Chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Switch over to 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read verses 9 and 10. 1 John chapter 4. If you get to Revelation, it's towards the end of the Bible. If you get all the way to Revelation, you've gone just a little bit too far. Just peel back a couple pages from there. 1 John chapter 4. This is what the Scripture says. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would lead, that you would guide, that you would teach. 
Father, that you would help us to understand what is true about love, what has been degraded and distorted about love, and that, Father, you would help us to receive a love from you that only you can give. So, God, would you set our hearts, our minds on Jesus this morning. We know that love comes to us through him. So would you set our hearts and minds on him? Would you move, God, by the power of your word that we're reading now, by the power of your spirit who's at work among us? I'll pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So how would we uh, describe a biblical vision for love that's different from, better than the culture's vision for love? I'd say it like this. Biblical love is unconditional sacrifice and commitment. Where the culture's vision for love is unconditional affirmation and celebration, especially of who you currently are. The Bible's vision for love is different. It's unconditional sacrifice and commitment. That's what John is telling us here, both in John 3 and in 1 John chapter 4, that God is love. It's the end of verse 9. It's verse 16 as well in 1 John chapter 4. God is love. And what John is telling us is that this is God's character. This is his nature. This is who he is. And sometimes we'll like throw out a statement like, man, God can do anything he wants. And that's not actually a true statement. That's not a, that's not a good thing. It's not a helpful thing to say. God cannot do one thing. He cannot act in a way that is contrary to his nature. He cannot act in a way that would violate who he is. How could something come out of God or come from God that doesn't reflect who he really is, right? It doesn't make sense. It can't happen. God always acts in accordance. It lines up his actions and his nature, his character. They always line up perfectly. And so John is telling us God is love. That's his character. That's his nature. Then what God does is always going to be loving. He cannot not be loving. It would be impossible for him to do that. And so this is love, John says, that God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. True love, biblical love, is committed and sacrificial. That's the way that God loves us through Jesus. And that's what it means then to, to experience true and biblical love. The greatest demonstration of this biblical love that the world has ever seen, could ever see, will ever see, is at the cross where Jesus stands in our place. And you think about that, like why would Jesus do that? Jesus didn't go to the cross because he looked ahead into the future and realized that we would all deserve it one day. Right, That we would all be worthy of his love one day. He didn't look into the future and realize that, man, we were all going to work really hard and earn his love one day. One day they'll build up enough credit that they deserve what I'm going to do right now. So I'll go ahead and pay for it, and then they'll pay me back later. That's not what happened. He didn't look into the future and realize that, man, if I do this, they'll all be so thankful. They'll praise me. They'll glorify me. Their hearts will be overflowing with appreciation for what I've done. And he didn't look into the future and think to himself, you know, these people just need a second chance. And if I give it to them, then they'll really seize on that. They'll take a hold of it. And man, they'll make the best of it. And so I'll go ahead and make this sacrifice. That's not what happened at all. That's not why he went to the cross at all. His sacrifice for us, his commitment to us was unconditional. That means it was without preconditions. I flip to Romans real quick. We read this a few weeks ago, but it's worth reading again. Romans chapter 5. Paul talks about this in verse 6. You see, at just the right time, Romans chapter 5, verse 6, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this 
while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, that means that our backs were turned to God. God is over here and we are facing this way and we are going this way all the time, further and further and further away from him. Right? There is nothing in us that wants to turn around and see God. There's nothing in us that wants to turn around and experience God. There's nothing in us that wants to turn around and even care what God's up to. We're doing our thing. We're answering the question, why am I here? What am I called to do? What's best for me? We're answering that on our own. And we just go further and further and further away from God and into that environment. While we were still sinners, while we were still walking away, while we still had our backs turned to him, God sent Jesus into the world to rescue us. It was nothing good in us that caused God to do this. It was something good in him that causes him to do this. And that is his love, his character, his nature. And you think about, well, why did he do that? Right? I hear you saying it's because of love, but what was he hoping to achieve in that? In the culture, we think about affirming and celebrating who people currently are. Is that what God was doing? Flip back to John chapter 3. When we see that for God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son. That conversation, Jesus says this in the context of a conversation with a guy named Nicodemus, who was a religious leader in Israel. Uh, He was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He's having this conversation with Jesus. Now, if Jesus had come into the world at just the right time, and his only goal was to affirm and celebrate who we already were, what he says to Nicodemus would not make any sense. Jesus says in verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Unless he is born again. He's saying to Nicodemus, something is wrong with you, Nicodemus. Something is wrong with everyone that needs to be undone. This wrong needs to be set right. And so you need to be born again. You need to be remade. You need to be renewed spiritually. There's something off that needs to be fixed. And that's why Jesus says he's come into the world. Not to affirm and to celebrate who we already are. Jesus doesn't look at us and say, okay, you're good. Hold the mirror up. You're beautiful just the way you are. Don't change a thing. You're perfect just as you are. That's not why Jesus comes into the world. The cultural vision of love, the agenda, right, is the celebration of who you currently are. It's different for biblical love. The agenda of biblical love is not the affirmation or the celebration of who you are. It's the transformation of who you are. It's the transformation of who you currently are. That's what God is accomplishing in us through Jesus. Right? When we're walking away and He sends Jesus and He brings us back, the Scripture says that's a gift of God's grace. You don't earn it. You can't deserve it. Sorry, you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. And He brings you back anyways. That's salvation. That's what God is accomplishing in salvation. And then once we're back, once we're reunited, once we're reconciled, and the gap between us and God has been closed by Jesus, the process of sanctification begins. That's the transformation. The ongoing work of God in our lives. You get saved once, you get sanctified over and over and over and over again. The transforming work never stops. And so here's what happens. God transforms us more and more into the image of Jesus. Paul says in Romans uh, chapter 8 that we are being conformed, molded into the image of Christ, into the likeness of Christ. All the ways that you are not currently like Jesus, God is changing so that you are more like Him. That's the transformation that's happening. And so we begin to love 
more and more like him too. That's what happens as we are transformed, we begin to love like God loves. No longer just looking at people, holding up the mirror and affirming and celebrating what is, but seeing what could be. Seeing what could be and working towards that end in people. Not what makes them feel good, but what actually is good and right and best for them. I was thinking about it this week. If the culture is holding up a mirror and helping people like what they see, the Bible is holding up Jesus and helping people see who they can become. That's the difference between the two types of love. The cultural vision for love and the biblical vision for love. Biblical love holds up Jesus to help people see who they can become. Turn back with me to 1 John 4 one more time. Because we're going to see here in the structure of this paragraph something significant. Starting in verse 7, we just read verses eight or 9 and 10, and we'll read them again. We're going to read the whole paragraph there, down through verse 11. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And so this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John there, he starts with our love for each other and he ends with our love for each other. And then right in the middle, the center of it all, the heart of our love for each other is God's love for us. I think John does that because God's love for us always motivates our love for us. For others, If we're going to have a biblical love, a committed love, a sacrificial love that does what's best for the other person, even if it doesn't feel great in the moment, right? That kind of a love for others, not just looking at them and affirming and celebrating what already is, but seeing what could be at the end of God's work and working towards that end, man, it's got to be motivated by God's love for us. And so you figure, man, if God is committed to me, Without precondition. I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. If he's committed to me, if he's sacrificing for me, there's nothing I did to earn Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. I'm just receiving it for free. Then that really frees me up to love in a different and a better way than I'm used to and than we're used to. You think about how we typically love or, or how love hap- happens between people, right? Usually it is very, very conditional. As long as you're doing the right types of things, I'm comfortable loving you, right? Or as Buddy would say, as long as I feel warm about you on the inside, then I'm going to love you. I'm going to express that. I'm going to show that. We'll go eat together and let our tongues swell up or whatever. But if that changes, if something about you changes, if your behavior towards me changes, then what happens? I lose that warm feeling, don't I? And now I feel cold towards you. And I'm not warm towards you. I'm harsh towards you. Until you change. Think about how we do this in marriage with our spouses. Man, when things are good, they're good. But if you screw this up, then I'm going to be cold and distant. We were talking in one of my counseling classes at Southeastern about, um, it's just conflict, but my professor said, have you ever thought about what happens when you give someone the silent treatment? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you love to give the silent treatment, okay? But just think about the last time you did that with a spouse or a kid or a coworker, friend, family member. All right, what happens? Somebody does something that upsets you. 
You don't feel warm towards them on the inside. You feel cold. And so you express that coldness by withholding your affection, even your words from them. And he said, man, when you give someone the silent treatment, are you not saying to them, I wish you were dead? I wish you were dead. I wish you weren't here. And so I'm going to treat you as if you're not. Even if we're in the same house, even if we share the same workspace, even if we're on the same team, right? I'm going to treat you as if you don't exist because really, I wish you were dead. I had never thought about it like that before. Right? I consider myself fairly skilled in giving the silent treatment. I had never thought about it like that before. I mean, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Because that's so different than how God treats us. It's so different than how God loves us. There are no preconditions with God like there are with us. God isn't waiting for us to become worthy of His love before He shows it. He's not pulling it away from us when we screw up like we do with each other. God's love is committed and it's sacrificial. It seeks the good of the other person no matter what. And when we are receiving that kind of love from God and we realize that's what it really is and we see the significance of that and it frees us up to love people in the exact same way. I'm no longer waiting for my spouse to do the right things before I show her love. I'm no longer waiting for my kids to get it together before I show them love. I'm no, no longer waiting for my coworkers or my family or my friends, whatever, to get it right and then I'll love them. And if they don't, I'll pull it away until they fix it. And then I'll give it again. And back and forth and back and forth. You're worthy. No, you're not. I feel warm towards you. Now it's cold. Because I'm receiving an unconditional commitment, an unconditional sacrifice that no matter what you do, I can respond in the exact same way with commitment and with sacrifice for your good. Because it's no longer about me. All of a sudden now it becomes about God. The question then for us is like, what kind of love am I receiving from God? That's what I want us to kind of meditate on for a few minutes here at the end. What kind of love am I receiving from God? What kind of love then am I sharing with others? And even as I say that, right, God is who God is, and God loves in the way that God loves. There's only one kind of love that you can actually receive from Him, and it's just His committed, sacrificial love. That's the only love that's available to us from God in reality. But that's not often how we think about God. We often think about God in the same way that we think about each other. Well, if I've pleased God, then God will love me. Like, if I've pleased my spouse, then my spouse will love me. Or kids, if I please my parents, then my parents will love me. If I please God, then God will love me. If I do what He says and I get it right, then He'll be more loving. And if I don't, I better, I better back off. I better shrink away because I don't want what comes after that. And so we think about God the same way we think about each other. We put our experience of each other's love onto God. And what that does is it means we're not really receiving love from God at all. It's not God who's pulled away from us, though. It's us who have pulled away from God because we're afraid of what we'll find if we approach Him. Imperfect, messed up sinners, we're afraid of what we'll find. I think the invitation to us from the Scriptures this morning is clear. Right? God has a permanent love for you. God has a committed love for you. It does not depend on you at all. He's just calling you to receive it. Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. 
If you're not already, we would love for you to join us in person at either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 10.30. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.